Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. This is a bonus podcast, bonus number three. I am recording these additional podcasts simply because we are beginning the study of the New Testament. As we read through these chapters in the New Testament, there are some background materials that we need to know about because over and over again, especially in the Gospels, we're going to be confronting these particular teachings. And so we've already learned something of the summary of the Old Testament time periods in bonus podcast number one. In bonus podcast number two, we looked at the fullness of time when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those of us under the law, that we could be adopted into his family. That's Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. Today, I want to talk about other things that developed during the intertestamental period and that carried over into the New Testament. I want to take as our text, again, a passage from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we're going to learn a lot about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to meet him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But now listen to verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. No doubt he pointed to them. And even when now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will immerse you. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. That is what he separates the wheat from the chaff. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow, what a fiery preacher. Now, John the Baptist wouldn't be popular in most of our churches today. They certainly wouldn't call him to be pastor, and most pastors would not have him in for a meeting because he would rile up most of the congregation, and the pastor would probably have a meeting with the deacons and would be fired immediately. 
And so all of these things we just have to take into consideration in our present day. But back in verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, that's when he said, you're a brood of vipers, because he knew they were there to spy on him. He knew they were not coming to repent. He knew they were not coming to confess their sins because they were too proud and pompous to do that. You see, they were the professional clergy of the day. So what I want to do is I want to take just a few minutes and help us to understand what we will confront over and over again in the Bible. So let's talk about some of these groups. The origin of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the spiritual descendants of pious Jews, really, who were pious Jews who had fought the Hellenists in the days of the Maccabees. You can go back and read about the Maccabean revolt and godly Mattathias and his sons, one of whom was Judas, that they called the Maccabi. That's the Hebrew word for hammer. He was a great warrior, and he led a great revolt. And during this period of history of the Jewish people, the Maccabees conquered most of what King David had conquered, and not only did they take back what the Greeks had taken from them and what the Persians and the Babylonians had taken from them, but they conquered back and gained back much of what would have extended as far as the kingdom of David and Solomon. Not the full extent, but they took back a lot of land. They took back a lot of ground. So out of that movement came the Pharisees. Now, the word Pharisee means separatist. It refers to someone who is separate and apart. They were nonconformist. What happens is when someone uh, becomes a separatist, and we've seen this in independent movements in our own lifetimes, uh, whether it's independent, fundamental, this or that, or whether it's in the charismatic movement, this or that, those that separate themselves many times begin to think that they are the only ones that are right. And that's why during church splits, you can tell almost if something's a church split of the name that they give to themselves. Now, it's not many times in even they are aware of the pride that's involved in it, but it's uh, many times a church split will be called Emmanuel, God with us, not God with us, but God with us. Or Mount Harmony, because now we've left, we've got harmony among ourselves, and so let's call ourselves Mount Harmony. We are in harmony one with another, and we just have sweet fellowship together. Or Calvary, we are the one that centers in on Calvary. Or there'll be something that will bring attention to themselves, that they are the ones that are faithful. We have to be very careful about this because pride is so deceptive, and our hearts are so deceptive that we deceive ourselves. And the Pharisees came to the point to where they said, hey, we're not like those other guys. We're not like them. We're so different. And they began to be filled with pride. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. Now, on many things, they were right. But what we have to do is, in studying the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all these groups, we have to learn from them. 
Because life's too short to learn from just our own mistakes. We have to learn from the mistakes of others. We have to learn from the successes of others as well, not just their failures, but their successes. But what we have to continually do is go back to the Word of God, because that's the only sure standard that we have. And as we read the Word of God, the ground is level at the Word of God. It's level at the cross of Christ. And we all see ourselves for what we are without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, without God the Father, without God Almighty, we are nothing. And as long as we understand that, and that we are no better than anyone else, we might know more than this one or that one, but there's always someone who knows less than us and always someone who knows more than us. Only God is perfect. And the Apostle Paul, remember, said to the church at Philippi in chapter 3, and this was the Apostle Paul at the close of his life when he was in a Roman prison cell, and here is what he said. I have not attained. I have not arrived. So if the Apostle Paul hadn't arrived at the end of his life, I think you and I are safe to say that we have not. So I want you to remember that it's easy to think that it's me, my four, and no more, and we've got it and nobody else does. We have learning no one else does. We have information no one else does. We have spirituality no one else does. That is a lie, and it leads to pride. This is what happened with the Pharisees, and they missed Jesus. However, because they did believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they so did believe the scriptures that Pharisees, many Pharisees, were saved in the New Testament time period. And uh, the most famous of those, of course, is the man who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus, who was the prized student of Gamaliel, who was the prized student of the rabbi called Hillel. He and Shammai were the two famous rabbis that were contemporaries during the days of Jesus and just before. And Gamaliel was the prized student of Hillel, and the prize student of Hillel was Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Now, let me just give you a side note as I read rabbis from the last 2,000 years and talk with great rabbis today around the world, what they tell me and what the writers tell me is this, that since the days of Gamaliel the Elder, who was the mentor of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, there has not been an elder like him. There has not been a person like him. And I believe there is a stark reason for that that we need to understand. That person was to be in Judaism Saul of Tarsus. But because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he radically changed his life, and I'm talking about radical in the Latin sense, radical to the root of his being, he changed him. He became the great apologist, not the crazy man, not the lunatic that the Pharisees and the Jews made him to be, but the man who to his core believed that Jesus was the Messiah is the Messiah, and that he was the Redeemer that had been promised down through the ages to Israel. And so Saul was a Pharisee. So these were the people who believed in miracles, believed in the resurrection of the dead. And they were kind of in charge of the synagogues. They were the common man's kind of religious person. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. 
he was converted to Christianity, to the Lord Jesus, to become a follower of Jesus. And so they were out in the synagogues. And this is why Saul of Tarsus got such a hearing readily anywhere he went, because he was this prize student of Gamaliel, who was the chief Pharisee as such in the Sanhedrin. And so this is very important just to understand the background and the historical context of the New Testament. And so this is why anywhere that Saul went, he got a hearing with the Jews because the synagogues were primarily run by Pharisees. And the temple complex was run by the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were very conservative as far as tradition and keeping the traditions of the temple because they were in charge. They were in charge of the priesthood as the Pharisees were out among the people in the Beit Knesset, what we call the synagogues today, and really was in charge of the common people. And that's why we read so much about them in the Bible is because they were out there where the people were, but these priests were Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple and all of the traditions and all of the religiosity of that temple that Jesus had to face. But there were a couple of things that were different about them than the Pharisees. Well, many things, but a couple that will be interesting to you because uh, the Apostle Paul pointed this out. The Sadducees did not believe in angels and they did not believe in the supernatural as such as the Pharisees. And so there was great division theologically among them. And the apostle Paul knew this. And you'll recall when he was arrested and he was brought before the Sanhedrin, he perceived that part of the group was, of course, Pharisees and part Sadducees. And he said, wait just a minute. I'm being brought up on charges because I am preaching the resurrection from the dead. He knew that when he said that, the Pharisees would say, hey, wait a minute. We believe that as well. And so that's exactly what happened. And they said, hey, let we need to let this man go. And the Sadducees said, no, 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 we can't do that. And so uh, Paul knew uh, theologically how to get them arguing with one another and to forget about him. And so he was let go. And so that kind of sums up the Pharisees and Sadducees and the group of people that they ministered to. Now, you're also going to read about the Essenes only in literature, not in the Bible. Many believe that John the Baptist came out of the Essene sect, and uh, I certainly have my doubts about that. But he dressed like they did to some degree. He lived like they did. He lived and was preaching. His ministry was down near the Dead Sea in Jericho, and that's where the Essene community was. We know it as Qumran. We know the Essenes because of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found back in 1947, 48, and, and since then many finds, even recent finds in the last decade. But they are a uh, people that believe that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not where they needed to be with God. So they separate altogether from the temple worship that they believe was corrupt and so forth and went down in the desert, in the Judean uh, desert and wilderness rather. There is where they built their community. You can go to Qumran today where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and see how they lived. And they were an ascetic people that lived uh, by themselves. Then you had the scribes. Of course, the scribes was not a sect. That was a profession. The sophers were the copyists of the law of God. Many times they were also priests or Levites or someone that just happened to have a gifting 
and were blessed to be able to copy the Torah and to copy the law and to copy what we would call the Tanakh. And so this is what Ezra was. Ezra was a priest, but he was also a scribe and he had great influence. I'm telling you, I cannot overstate to you the influence of Ezra on the New Testament and the days of the New Testament in which Jesus lived, and even the text that Jesus read in Luke chapter 4, when we get there, we'll deal with this, when Jesus went into the Beit Knesset, the synagogue on Shabbat, when he went back into his hometown, he was handed the Torah portion for that week. He was handed the scroll of the book of Isaiah, and it was on the Torah portion for that week that Ezra had laid out during his days 400 plus years earlier. We don't have time to go into that, but the scribes were critical to the copying of the Word of God. And then you had the Herodians. They believed the best interest of Judaism lay in cooperation with the Romans. And so they were like Herod the Great, who wanted to Romanize the Jewish people and say, hey, look, this is a powerful nation. Remember, Herod had been to Rome. He had seen the might of Rome. He had seen the armies of Rome. He had seen the legions of Rome. He had seen the wealth of Rome. And he felt like the Jews didn't have a chance. And if they were going to survive, they needed to link arms with the Romans and do whatever they said to do, whatever the compromise they had to make. Of course, that was complete heresy. And God used all of those things to get ready for the Messiah. But the Herodians were a sect, and they were part of the New Testament context. And then you had zealots. You're going to read about the zealots. The zealots were those who believed just the opposite, that the yoke of Rome needed to be thrown off, and that they needed to politically bring that about, not Messiah bringing it about, but they needed to be political in what they were doing. Of course, our churches are filled with zealots today who believe that the kingdom of God is going to be brought in through political leadership. Now, listen, we need to vote because we have a say in how Caesar rules us in our particular type of government. But folks don't ever get to thinking that the Lord Jesus is going to ride in on an elephant or he is going to come in on the donkey that represents the uh, Democratic Party because, let me tell you, that's not the way that it is. Jesus is not a political leader. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and one day he will come, and he's not going to be voted into power. He is power, and he's going to take power, and he will rule with a rod of iron, and he will rule in a theocracy. That's right. People say, wait just a minute. What Are you, are you saying we're, we're not going to get to vote when Jesus? No, the voting is over when Jesus comes. Jesus is not coming to take sides. Jesus is coming to take over. Well, that's about all the time I have. For On the Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at tonycrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.